If you visited Church of the Resurrection even one time, you would know that our vision is to invite everyone into a transforming relationship with Jesus in His church. Now, according to some sociologists, there are a growing number of people, though, who would take offense at that statement, not because it's Christian necessarily, and they would actually like the first part. They would resonate with the Jesus part of that vision, but what they would not quite enjoy is the church part of that statement, because they're people who do love Jesus, but they don't love His church. Sociologists are calling them the Duns, D-O-N-E-S, meaning they are done with Christianity, but they still love Jesus and they want to serve Him, and so they feel like to serve God, they need to leave the church and serve Him on their own. Now, of course, we can appreciate how sometimes uh, there have been wounds in the context of church and situations where people have seen sin and distortions and things that have kind of turned them off uh, to the Christian faith. And but it brings up these questions about us and our loves, and whether is, is it just is enough to love Jesus? Can we just love Jesus and that be good, or do we really have to love one another? All of our Bible texts this morning are dealing with this theme, and we even heard from the gospel reading itself that there's this new commandment to love one another. But if you're familiar with the Scriptures, this is not new at all. In fact, it's really, really old because thousands of years earlier, it was written that you should love your neighbor as yourself. So how is this a new commandment? We're going to get to that, but in order to learn how it's new, we have to go back and understand the old. And so if you would, with me this morning, take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus chapter 19. And as Father Brett mentioned, I think we should just pause and appreciate that that may be the first time you have ever heard the words uttered, turn your Bibles to Leviticus. But this is wonderful. Leviticus chapter 19, and we're going to start in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Some of you at this very moment are putting up the walls and thinking, oh no, here we go. Here's the moralism that I don't like about church. Or, Chad, this is law. We don't live under law anymore. We live in grace. And actually, that's a really common misunderstanding of how God has oriented Himself to His people throughout time. And the misperception is that in the Old Testament, God is kind of this ornery guy who puts lots of burdens on people. And then over time, he kind of mellows out. He's like an old, older grandpa who starts to say, "Uh, maybe I was wrong all those years. You don't have to worry about those things that I used to say. Just kind of do whatever you want because now we're going to live in a different way. That is not the picture that we have in the Bible of the God who we, we worship. Because in truth, how God relates to His people in the Old Testament is based on grace just as much as it is in the New Testament. If we think about when God delivered the Ten Commandments to the people, right before He delivered those in Exodus 20, He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then He proceeds to talk about how to live in a flourishing way in this kingdom that He's instituting. So law has never been a means to salvation for God's people, as in we do these things so that we can be saved. 
It has always instead been a response to the saving work of God. God brings the salvation. The people respond then and act in different ways of devotion that are not arbitrary rules. I think that's part of this perception, that God says, do these things, and they're just arbitrary, pull them out of your pocket, here are the things we should do. Actually, these are things that reflect God's very nature and character, and that's why they're so key to us. So the key for interpreting the whole book of Leviticus, and especially the chapter that we're talking about, is actually Exodus chapter 19. You don't need to turn there unless you want to, but Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Similar language to before the Ten Commandments. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel, by divine plan, was chosen to be a holy nation separate among the other nations, to live in a certain way that was different from everybody else. This in itself is not something that is really foreign to our thinking. I was remembering back to high school, and I played different sports, one of them being football. And before every football season, the coach would gather all of us in the locker room, and he would have this... this, uh, sort of canned speech that he would give. And he would say, remember, whatever you do out off of the field is going to reflect on all of us. And so you need to act in this certain way. You need to be a person of high character, uh, high morals, and never really spelling out what that meant. But uh, this is something that is not really foreign to us. We get that. And this is even how, how much more should this be true when we're talking about reflecting the character of the living God. So As a kingdom of priests, they were also called to minister God's presence to people, to show who God is to the other nations. We've been using the word holy a lot so far, so let's define that before we move forward and talk more about the rest of this uh, chapter. Holy just means set apart. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, it includes the component of morality, but it's not just doing and not doing the right things. It's being intrinsically different. It's the opposite of common if we think of it that way. And so God is completely opposite of common. He's special. He has infinite power and greatness. He is pure righteousness and goodness and beauty. And be holy is the goal of all of these commands that we have in the book of Leviticus, especially here in chapter 19. In fact, from chapter 17 on, this is what the book of Leviticus is. It shows what it means for God's people to live in a holy way, meaning all these different aspects of my ordinary life, from when I get up in the morning till when I go to sleep in the evening, what does it look like to embody God's character and nature in a way that others see what God is like? That's what we have here in Leviticus chapter 19. In the Old Testament reading, you probably notice this nice rhythm of commands and then I am the Lord, commands, I am the Lord, Five times that happens in our passage. And I think that's instructive to us because God is saying, yes, act in these ways, but you're acting in these ways because that's who I am. And so that's a reflection then of me in the world around you. So let's take a look at these, starting with verses 9 and 10, where we have the first set of commandments, Leviticus 19. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This seems a little foreign to us, most of whom are not agrarians. Uh, But these commands to leave the things that have fallen were really important. And the reason they were important is because the people who didn't have land didn't have anything to sustain themselves, nothing to provide for their needs. So they depended on the generosity of others. And so we have this picture of, of things falling on the ground. And I don't know about you, but my temptation, if I'm a harvester, I'm just more prone to not letting anything go to waste. And so I'm, I'm probably picking stuff up. Oh, that fell down. I'm going to pick it up. Or there's another grape. Don't want to miss any grapes. Put those in my, what a grape carrier, whatever that would be. But that's exactly what we are not supposed to do according to this passage because we have a responsibility to these brothers and sisters who are also made in God's image to provide for them. And so I think we could summarize this set of commandments here in the first section by saying, take care of the underprivileged. Take care of those who don't have what they need to live on. And then I was thinking about how that reflects God's character. What does that say about God's character? I think it tells us that God is generous. And how we reflect that generosity is not to hoard everything that we can possibly hoard and have in our possession. Of course, this could be money. That was the first thing that I thought about. Can I leave extra that could be used by the Lord to help those who don't have enough? But then I also started to think about, and was convicted by the Holy Spirit, about time. Because I think I pick up every last minute that has fallen on the ground, and I try to cram everything in. Our lives are so programmed that there's no time that if someone comes to me with need, I'm like, oh, sorry, got too many appointments. And so maybe that's a way in our culture that this could uh, actually find its way into our practice of leaving things for people who need need us to come alongside them and provide for them in, in really hard times. Second set of commandments, verses 11 through 12. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. How could we summarize this one? Act with truth and honesty. Because being honest with one another in our words and in our actions actually reflects God's character. Because God is who He says He is. God does what He says He does, which is kind of different from a lot of our experience in the world. And so when we do what we say, when we act in ways that are consistent with our character, because that's what God is like, people see that He's trustworthy. People see that we're trustworthy in reflecting that characteristic. What does this say about God, God's holy character? He is true. There's nothing false about him. He is unified in what he says and what he does and who he is. And we're called to reflect the same. How might we reflect this nature of truth today? Of course, 
stealing, lying, dealing falsely, they may look different in our culture than they did back then. So most of us aren't prone to just go take things from our neighbors, like their bikes and their cars, although some do. But what about taking sick days when we're not sick? Or what about adding in some reimbursements on our business trip that well, the company doesn't really need that money, I need it more than they do? What about misrepresenting ourselves to make ourselves look better? I can't really do those things, but I'll just put it on my resume because I think that'll make me look good and maybe I'll get the job. Or how about stretching the truth in order to pass a class, in order to get a promotion? Uh, I think of, I thought back to the time when I was in college. I went to a Christian university in the South, and the mission of that Christian university was to educate its students in mind, spirit, and body. The body was a key component, and so we all had to take health fitness classes. And as part of every health fit fitness class every semester, we had to record what are called aerobic points. Now, aerobic points are detailing the types of activity that you do, how long you do them, and how intense these activities are. And so I remember on this thinking, oh, come on, really? So I walked to class today, so walked to class. I, that was pretty, that was high intensity. That's probably 20 minutes, and so I get this many points. Probably not accurately representing the intensity nor duration and potential health benefits of my walk to class. Command number three, verses 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So what's the command? Protect others, especially the weak. Don't deprive people of what is rightfully theirs. They have it coming to them, and yet we withhold that. But especially, we're commanded not to exploit the deaf and the blind. Clearly, there's a literal deaf and blind that are meant in this passage, that we need to care for those with disabilities because they're made in God's image, because we are meant to surround them and reflect God's nature in that way. But there's also a figurative element of protecting others, especially the weak, in that we don't prey on other people's weaknesses. And we don't take advantage of people who don't maybe know or perceive something. Like, if I walked into an auto shop, I would be in a position of weakness. I am the novice as far as auto mechanics goes. Someone could tell me I needed a new anything, and I would probably believe them and pay lots of money and be sad. What does this say about God's character? God is compassionate. He's compassionate especially for the weak and the vulnerable, and He cares immensely for them, and so He calls us to care for them. Notice especially how these offenses against the blind and the deaf could be secret. They're things done that not everyone would notice. They're kind of behind the scenes, but this language here says, remember, you do nothing in secret 
because God sees and God hears. How can we reflect this nature of compassion and care for the weak and vulnerable today? I think it's highlighted, especially in situations where there's an expert and a novice, that we don't unnecessarily take advantage of people who are in a position of not knowing as much as we do. Whether that's in a professor-teacher relationship, a doctor-patient relationship, a a therapist-client relationship, or even professional services and receiver of those services relationship, like me and auto work. So not charging more money than we should, not adding coverages or things that the person doesn't need but that we would perhaps benefit from. The fourth set of commandments, verses 15 and 16, says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. How do we summarize this set of commandments? Preserve justice. God's judgment is always fair, and so our judgment needs to be fair, and we shouldn't show partiality to the rich or to the poor. Now, We need to be careful here because I think it's easy for us in our culture to defer to the rich and give them the benefit of the doubt over against the poor, and that's not right. And we need to be sensitive to that. But then we also can't swing to the opposite end of the spectrum and say, we're going to give the poor everything at the expense of the rich just because they're rich. So there's this element of being fair and just and not making decisions and judgments based only on the amount of wealth and resources that people might have. Verse 16 is a little bit hard to translate, and in consulting different scholars on this, there were, there were different ideas about how uh, to render this. The first is the rendering that is in our, in our Scripture passage in the, uh, in the ESV, the sense of not rising up against our neighbor. But then there's also a different sense that could be not pursuing our livelihood at the expense of another person's well-being that we don't go and do the things we need to do to get the things we need to get and step on other people in order to get there. That we need to be careful that as we are doing what we're called to do, that we're not using people in order to get there. What does this say about God's holy character? God is just. And as the ultimate judge, his judgments are always fair and right. How do we reflect that justice in our nature, uh, in God's nature today? I think there's some overlap with the previous one where we don't sell things to people that they don't need. Maybe there's a life insurance policy that really provides more coverage than the person needs, and we probably shouldn't sell that person that policy. We should let their needs dictate what we're selling to them, that we treat people who report to us fairly that we don't demand so much and work people to the bone that they barely have anything left to give and that that we don't play favorites. We don't elevate people just because of certain characteristics they may have, but that we make fair and accurate judgments according to God's righteousness. The fifth and final section is actually the climax or umbrella of this whole passage. Everything comes to this crescendo here in verses 17 and 18 
But you shall not, or, yes, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the driving force behind all these dealings with our neighbors is love, the very nature of God as love, seeing people as people created in God's image with needs of their own, just like we ourselves have needs. And when we see them, we come to their assistance and we act on their behalf for their benefit. Buried in this, this is the first time I have ever seen this little phrase in here, it really caught my attention. I think it's worth pointing out. This not allowing our ill feelings to fester. That's part of the verses 17 and 18 here. Because when we allow ill feelings to fester, that starts building up into resentment. It can start building up into hatred, which can ultimately lead to taking vengeance against someone else. And so the loving thing to do, actually, according to Leviticus 19, is this, this confrontation and admonishing in a loving way so that we don't let this stuff build up inside. So clearly, God's holy character, his set-apart character is loving, and his words, his actions, his feelings are all oriented toward the benefit of his creation. And how do we reflect that love today? Everything that we've talked about in this passage would fit under that. All these actions for the benefit of the other. Notice how often in this passage actions are lined out. That love is not just a fuzzy thing, feeling we have for someone, but love actually shows itself in how we act toward our brothers and sisters. So I just want to summarize where we've been before we jump to the New Testament. God graciously rescues his people and he calls them to live in a way that reflects who he is, the very core of his nature, and then how to behave, how to act in ways that lead to their flourishing as individuals and as a community. But if we read the rest of the Old Testament, we see that Israel failed miserably in this calling. If we read through the prophets, time after time after time, we hear the prophets railing against Israel saying, you're not acting justly, you're lying, you're exploiting the weak, you're not caring for the poor and the stranger, you're not loving your neighbor, you're not reflecting who I am. One of the examples is in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament, so the very last book of the Old Testament before we have a, a period of silence as far as God's speaking. Malachi chapter 2, first he speaks against the priests. The priests, the ones who are supposed to represent most fully in the, God's nature and embody his nature to the people, he says this, you turned aside and you caused many to stumble. And then he backs up to the nation as a whole, to the people, and he says, you're faithless. There's no distinction between you and everybody else, all the other nations. But then in chapter 3 of Malachi, it ends on this really subtle note of hope. And the hope is that someday this set-apartness, this holiness will be restored among God's people. And so 400 years later, God comes himself. God himself enters humanity. Jesus, fully God and fully human, is faithful where Israel was not. Faithful to the calling to show what God is like 
in how humans were designed to flourish in his kingdom. He embodies God's presence and reveals God's character in the most perfect way possible because he is God. And he establishes us as a kingdom of priests, not only making our calling clear, but also giving us the power to fulfill that calling. So the New Testament is actually the same story of the Old Testament, same melody, different words, in that God comes and he rescues the people and then he shows them how to live so that others will see what he's like and to promote flourishing both as individuals and as a community. And then we respond to that salvation by living in the way of this new king, King Jesus, not arbitrary rules that are just picked out of the pocket, but by things that are, that are the very nature of God himself. And not only that, but the law, instead of being written on tablets, is written on our hearts. That we're a kingdom of priests whose set-apart lives show the outside world what God is like, and we minister that presence to those around us. The crux of that calling is here in John chapter 13. So now we're going to get to how this is new. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So there's the new part. You probably notice it now after spending so much time in Leviticus. As I have loved you. We look to Jesus as the ultimate example of what this love looks like. And so what do we see? It's cross-shaped. This ultimate love and God's self-revelation is shaped as the cross a radical laying down of life. And in fact, John, a couple chapters later, will say, uh, Jesus is saying these words, and John records them, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's in God's very nature to love, and that love looks like laying down of life. Sacrificial, self-giving. This is serious. If we thought Leviticus was intense, this is like intense squared. Self, complete self-emptying, self-giving love. I don't know about you, but this kind of love confronts me personally. And right away it calls me to lay down selfishness and pride and my desire to be right, my desire for a nice, easy life, my claim on my time, my independence, my autonomy, And if I stop here, this doesn't sound like good news to me. <laughs> God calling me to love in this way? No way! I can't do this! That's not my default. Probably not yours either. Because if Jesus' love is only a pattern or example, I have no chance. It's like telling me to get in a boat and cross Lake Michigan in a boat that has no battery. That's just not going to happen. But here's the good news. What God calls us to do by his, his command and his example, he actually gives us the power to accomplish by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, according to Romans chapter 8, dwells in us to allow these things to actually come out of us and love in this way that we're called to love. So God puts the battery in the boat for me, and then he empowers it to go across the lake. God's nature inherently is self-giving love. That's who he is. And that, that's why it reflects his character. And our call is to embody that love. 
This is so different, so set apart, so holy, if you want to use that word, which is a great Bible word, that others will notice. And here's what we see at the end of our gospel reading, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John Chrysostom, the great church father and wonderful preacher, said this, passing over the miracles that they were to perform, Jesus makes love the distinguishing mark of his followers. Miracles don't attract unbelievers as much as the way you live your life, and nothing brings about a proper life as much as love. As the good old song from the 60s says, they'll know you are Christians by your love. That's true. It's straight from this passage. It's not they'll know you're Christians by how much you love Jesus or how much you love God the Father, which are wonderful things and good things, but it's they know you're Christians by your love for one another. And this is why loving Jesus but not his church is inconsistent. We can't love one and not the other. These are a package deal. They come together. It's like when your friend's on the playground and you got picked and you're like, we come together, we're a package. We can't separate those. Tertullian, the great church father, at the end of the second century wrote this, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another, how they're ready even to die for one another. And as a modern theologian writes, the mutually lived out heart love of Christians for one another will be the single greatest missionary force in the world. And we enact this love every week when we come to the table. The gifts of God for the people of God is in the liturgy. Holy things for holy ones, literally in the original language. This table unites us not just to Jesus, which it does, but it unites us to each other it's not just a Jesus and me moment when we take the bread and the cup. This is a Jesus and us moment. Three things as we wind up our time here in, in God's Word. First, I just want to celebrate the ways that this love is present at resurrection. So many wonderful ways that we see this self-giving love and people making meals and watching each other's kids and providing housing and visiting in the hospital Adoption, foster families, safe families, giving of our time, our money, our professional services and resources. Second, though, I want us all to receive a gracious invitation. And this isn't a heavy-handed, burdensome thing that the Lord heaps on shame for. This is actually a gracious invitation to embody this love more deeply. And there might be someone in your family, uh, someone among your friends, or someone even in this body or another Christ follower who God's bringing to your attention right now to whom he's calling you to extend this self-giving love. And finally, I wanted to acknowledge, I think, some of the barriers to this love and, and how the Lord might want to work in and remove some of those today. Some of you maybe don't want to lay down your life in self-giving love, Maybe it's pride or selfishness or just a, it's inconvenient and you, you don't, just don't want to. Others feel like maybe you can't love because you haven't experienced God's love yourself, sort of a love deficiency. And some may have hearts that are just, they just feel hard. 
They might feel calloused. They might feel numb. Like you don't remember what it is to have a warm feeling because of how numb your heart is. Maybe it's pain, maybe it's trauma, maybe it's broken trust or fear. Because for some of you, loving like this doesn't feel safe. Because of things that have happened in the past, you've been taken advantage of or you've seen someone being taken advantage of. Come today. If you've never been to resurrection before, there will be prayer ministers on the sides while we take communion. And if any of these things describe you, please go receive prayer, receive the healing from the Lord this morning so that you might love with his love. Now, by the Spirit's power, may we all embrace our calling as God's holy people to embody God's holy nature by loving one another with the cross-shaped love we see in Jesus. Amen.